you know, when the high school kids say that we have the best internet, that, then we have arrived. Hello and welcome to episode 189 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Many of our podcasts focus on a particular community, but this week our guest has worked in three different communities. We first contacted Wes Kelly, Executive Director of the Columbia Power and Water System, because we knew he had played an integral part in developing the community network in Pulaski, Tennessee. At the time, we didn't know it, but he had also worked in Hillsdale, Michigan. In this conversation, Chris and Wes talk about some of the lessons Wes has learned along the way as he's coped with different challenges and victories unique to each community. Wes has some good advice for other towns who may be trying to decide whether or not a municipal network is right for them. Here's Wes Kelly, Executive Director of the Columbia Power and Water System. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell. Today I'm speaking with Wes Kelly, Executive Director of the Columbia Power and Water Systems in Tennessee. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So we're going to get into a number of background issues, uh, talking more generally about this uh, situation with municipal networks. Uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about Pulaski in Tennessee, but we're going to start in Columbia, where you are currently, before we go back in time. Um, tell me a little bit about what's happening in Columbia. Columbia, Tennessee, is a, is a nice community. It's just south of Nashville, um, a little bit north of Pulaski. And uh, it, it was started a few years before we got started in Pulaski, uh, and it was built as an HFC system. Most of your folks know that that means a hybrid fiber coax. Uh, in this case, we run fiber to about 70, maybe 80 homes, and then at that point we'll bust it up and put more fiber into the system. Columbia may have the distinction of being the last HFC system built. Uh, the system was built uh, in uh, 2003, I guess. Uh, I'm having to think back because I, I wasn't here at the time. Uh, you know, when you were saying that, I was thinking in my head, do I know one that's more recent? Because until you said that, the most recent one that I knew of was maybe Spanish Fork in 2001. Yeah, and, and at the time Fiber to the Home was happening, uh, Jackson, Tennessee, not too far from here, had already built Fiber to the Home. They were the first in Tennessee to get started. Um, Pulaski was gearing up. Chattanooga was gearing up. So there was a lot of uh, – Morristown was going. So there was a lot of Fiber to the Home discussion, but the leadership here decided, you know what, let's just stick with HFC. And uh, you, know, you can't go back and redo those decisions, but I must say that in terms of the customer impact and the services that are provided – for, for most customers, they're, they're not going to see a significant difference if your HFC system is well-maintained and taken care of. And that's what we try to do here is to keep pushing that fiber as deep as we need to to keep the service levels high. Now, there are some things you can't do with an HFC system. Gigabit Ethernet is one of them. You are not going to get gigabit speeds out of your HFC plant. Uh, we can get about 100 megs out of this HFC plant, and, uh, and we have a very, very good plant. Uh, so we're offering you know, 300 plus channels, uh, we're offering telephone and we're offering internet speeds. Most of our customers are on a 75 or 50 meg, uh, internet package. And when you said, you said about 70 or 80 homes on a loop, it sounded like, which was, uh, certainly below the uh, industry average. 
Oh, it is. It is. Charter is our uh, competitor here in Columbia, and when we look at their infrastructure, it's just night and day. One, of course, ours is newer. Uh, you know, theirs has been up in the air for decades. Uh, we push that down, and whenever we start to see any node congestion at all, it, a node is where the fiber meets the coax, and there's a device there that manages that. And whenever we start to see any uh, node congestion where that data is getting bottled up, we bust it out, split it, and make sure that the customer bandwidth, that our network is not the, the bottleneck. And are you doing uh, fiber to some of the businesses as they need it? We do. We have an extensive fiber network that not only provides our municipal needs that we have and utility needs that we have, we have an extensive AMI or smart meter system, if you want to use the, the old term. That means that we've got well, 26,000 electric meters and over 20,000 water meters that are reporting in to collectors across our network. Those, connect, those collectors are all connected via fiber. We then have uh, fiber that runs to all the city and the county buildings, our hospital. Uh, most of the large businesses in town are on our network, and indeed many of them have data and servers in our data center. So uh, since we have been here for a few years, we've earned the trust of all of the large commercial enterprises in town, and they are they are almost exclusively using us. And one of the things that we're going to be transitioning to is a little more background of why communities get into this. And I guess I'd be curious, um, for your time in Columbia, what do you get the sense in terms of the benefits and specifically in Columbia have been from the network? Well, certainly competition brings, uh, brings accountability. And I think Charter has stayed on its toes. Now, one thing that's interesting is Charter's actually located a regional headquarters here in Columbia now. Uh, so I don't know if we have to be thankful for that or not, but we do seem to be getting a lot of attention. And I, I think the people have enjoyed being able to keep their prices down, although I must say in the cable TV business, the, the actual video side of the business, the programming costs are just incredible, absolutely incredible, and they're pushing the prices to the retail customers up. No matter what any good cable provider tries to do, including us, that is just a relentless push on the pocketbooks. So we've been trying to, to stall that as much as we can and keep those rates as low as we can for as long as we can. Uh, I certainly think that uh, around Internet speeds, we have the fastest Internet in town. You know, nothing makes me happier than when I hear someone says, oh, yeah, my son was saying in high school the other day that y'all have the best Internet service. You know, when the high school kids say that we have the best Internet, that, then we have arrived. Uh, uh, you might think that you want the people who are paying the bills. No, you want the people who are, who are nagging the people who are paying the bills to, uh, to start marketing your product. Yeah, when it comes to technology, you want that, you want that youth enthusiasm that's always going to help you out. It has helped our community overall. Our community is starting to see some growth. Uh, certainly the 2008 recession impacted many communities. Columbia is close to Nashville, but not exactly within the urban sprawl. Uh, but it's getting closer. And uh, we're starting to see uh, quite a bit of economic development from that. And many of these businesses that are coming here are getting hooked into our fiber. And I'm curious if you're seeing any pressure. I mean, as Nashville's looking to become a gigabit city, do you have a sense that eventually you'll be um, uh, going to a, a fiber-to-the-home type product, or do you think you can just keep thinning the nodes out to keep that performance up? No, I imagine as we start to build new subdivisions, we will go with an all-fiber product within the new subdivisions. There, there's no problem operating both systems and going back into the same head end with it. Matter of fact, we, we, we bought a fiber-to-the-home technology uh, that we just haven't deployed yet that really we didn't intend to use on a fiber-to-the-home system. We wanted to use it on a fiber-to-the-business system and put it in our downtown area. I think we're still going to proceed with that. 
but uh, it won't surprise you. We have a very historic, you know, pre-Civil War downtown, and so rewiring the downtown is always a, a complicated project. But we do intend that as we build out new subdivisions, we'll go fiber. So one of the things that you were telling me is that you have, uh, you know, an interesting background in this, starting off with a community in Michigan uh, that decided not to move forward with a municipal broadband or type uh, or municipal cable type system. Let's get into that and talk about how you started in this business. After I graduated from college, I stayed and worked at my college for a few years, and I was a network engineer. I was I was the IT guy. I I, I ran Cat Five cable and fiber in buildings, and that's what I did, and set up servers and and whatnot. And the community that I was in was a, a Hillsdale, Michigan, which is a small town south of Lansing. Yeah. So in October of '97, the city council in Hillsdale decided they wanted to explore offering. Um, uh, well, they didn't call it broadband then because that term hadn't really caught on, but cable TV and internet service. And, uh, you know, they do the studies and the feasibility plans and all that that you do. And then they hired me in early 1999. Uh, I worked at the college that was located in Hillsdale. I was their network administrator. And uh, I ran into the city manager in, in, a, in line at the local Subway restaurant. And he said, hey, we're going to need somebody to run this thing. And uh, at the time, I had a job offer from a, a large corporate bank that was headquartered in Chicago. And so I really had an interesting choice. Go work at the large corporate skyscraper and do networking for them or try this crazy municipal broadband thing in a little town in Michigan. That's, that's I mean, if, you, if you've read Flash Boys by um, uh, Michael, um, the guy who wrote Liar's Poker, I can't remember his name now. Um, uh, Liar's Poker book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they, that was an, it's a fascinating time for banks getting in the IT world, the flash trading, all that sort of stuff. I mean, there's a lot of fiber optics going in there, but you know, I think uh, these, some of these communities are better serviced with your talents working for the community. Uh, so what happened there? Well, I had the proverbial uh, big fish, small pond kind of dilemma, and I decided to, that I wanted to work somewhere where I could see the fruits of my labor, that it wasn't just getting sucked up into some big corporation that I could actually see the impact. So I decided to stay in Hillsdale, start working for the Hillsdale Board of Public Utilities, which is the public utility that did the electric water and wastewater systems. And it was through that instrument that the city was going to build its, its, uh, its project. Uh, they had a, a vote of the people uh, to ask to permission to issue revenue bonds. In the state of Michigan, you had to have a vote of the people to issue bonds if the purpose of the bonds was to build a cable TV system. Wonder how that law got passed. But had the election in 1999, it passed on a two-to-one margin to issue $9.5 million in bonds to go build this system. So, okay, the voters approved it. We were off. We were going to get this thing designed. Problem is, as we were getting it designed, and by the way, we looked at fiber to the home back in 1999, early 2000. Uh, we, we were talking to a company called Worldwide Packets, now, now since gone, and uh, Worldwide Packets was saying this was going to be the first fiber to the home system in the U.S. Well, it didn't quite work out that way. We couldn't make the math work out quite right. The, the price points were still just a little bit higher. And that their uh, Worldwide Packet system was not a G-Pond system, which is what everyone is deploying today. It was really an active Ethernet system. It was basically taking a local area network and just spreading it across your city. So th- those costs didn't quite come in for us, so we decided to do a deep fiber HFC system, very similar to what Columbia built. Of course, this was uh, several years earlier. And um, we got it designed. And then what we found is we couldn't place the bonds. What happened in between when we had the vote and this time is the dot-com bubble had burst. 
And when that bubble had burst, no one was interested in revenue bonds where the proceeds of the broadband system were the only revenues pledged to repay the bonds. They weren't tied to the, to the electric system. They weren't tied to the taxpayers. And so we were getting quoted ridiculous interest rates. And so the only way to solve that is we had to go back to the public to have another vote to get permission to issue general obligation bonds, which have the backing of the city's full faith and credit. When we went back to get that authority, of course, the people said, wait a minute, we voted on this a year and a half, two years ago. Why are we voting on it again? It seemed odd. And so that election did not succeed. Right. I think there's a sense when you have that delay, people sometimes get a sense that, is this even really going to happen? And I think they just start getting very skeptical. Yeah. And, and, and people, yeah, people get nervous and, and, and understandably so. And especially when you're trying to understand the, the nuances between a revenue bond and a general obligation bond and, and, and all that, it, unfortunately, sound like a used car salesman. And that's never a good place to be when you're trying to secure an election. So what made you uh, move on from there then? Because um, uh, I know that you didn't spend the rest of your life in Hillsdale. While I was working at the Hillsdale Board of Public Utilities, after the broadband project had sort of been shut down, uh, my boss there said, hey, stay and I'll teach you the business. And he did. He was a good mentor to me. And uh, so I became the uh, assistant director of the utilities there and learned the power, water, and broadband business. Along the way, I met a gentleman named Ron Holcomb, who uh, was general manager of a small system in Michigan. Ron moved back to uh, Tennessee and became general manager of Pulaski Electric System. And when Ron got down there, and he'd spent a couple years down there, and he was ready to do a, a reorganization, and he and I ran into each other at a conference, and he said, sort of like the light bulb went off in his head, and he was like, you need to be in Pulaski. Uh, let's do this thing. Well, again, I'd gone through a lot of emotional uh, issues when we worked on that Hillsdale project for so long, and it didn't succeed. So I said, Ron, I'm not going to do it unless I know it's going to happen. So I, I said, when the city council votes and you've got geo bonds and it's, there is no more opportunity, it is go, we're going to build it, then I'll come. And that's exactly what happened. All those things uh, transpired. My wife, my very new wife, we'd only been married a few months, we, uh, we moved to Pulaski and uh, I started working with Ron and a really good team putting together the plan in uh, Pulaski, Tennessee. And so Pulaski actually did issue the general obligation bonds then. They sure did. Pulaski has an interesting history. They were an internet pioneer in their own way. Uh, back in 1993, they were the first community in the state to offer internet service to its residents. Uh, if I remember the story correctly, of course, long before I was there, but they had gotten a T1 line installed uh, to serve the, I think it was the local school or workforce development center or something like that. And what they realized is that T1, when they weren't using it for their distance learning application, it just sat there doing nothing. And they said, you know what? Let's put a modem bank in. You remember the old you know, 24 and 5,600 baud modems. I even remember before that, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll have people dial in, and they can use it at night. And then during the day when the classes are on, you know, we won't let people dial in. And so anyway, they offered, a, and it was city-owned. It was a city-owned uh, dial-up network. And uh, by 1998, they had about 1,500 homes and businesses using that dial-up service. And what they ended up doing is they sold it to um, a private company, or really a private company just took it over and bought the city out. And um, and it rocked on. It still exists in some form or fashion. Now it's a wireless internet business. When uh, Ron was hired to Pulaski, the uh, board made it clear that municipal broadband was something they wanted to spend time talking about. 
Well, Ron said, look, I've got some things I got to do to get the organization where it needs to be to be ready to couple it to a municipal broadband project. But in 2002, they started working on a plan. And then by 2003, they did some customer survey work, which I think is very important to understand what is the market reality. So by the spring of 05, they finished their business plan. By the summer of 05, they'd issued bonds. And by 2006, we were in construction. Well, it's interesting that you say that Ron wanted to get the house in order because that was one of the things I learned about Chattanooga, that it hasn't been commonly repeated, uh, but that they spent a number of years as well making sure that the utility was much more lean and efficient and that people had a real sense of being in a competitive environment where um, as they got into internet service, they would be ready to deal with competition as opposed to being in a regulated utility space where they were a monopoly. That is so important. And I know the good folks in Chattanooga, and they did do a lot of good work. It's interesting that they watched us in Pulaski as sort of like a little pilot project for them. As a matter of fact, with some equipment vendors, uh, we actually were their, their test bed. Uh, and it worked out for us because the vendor said, well, if we can test the product on you and it works, then we'll give you Chattanooga's pricing. Well, of course, we were very small and Chattanooga was very large, and so that worked out well for us. Yes, I can imagine. When you have uh, an employee base, and especially a customer service operation, which is in the traditional public utility mode, those are very dedicated and focused people. But that focus tends to be on accuracy and being accurate and, and, and not making mistakes. And that's important. You, you need to shift that focus a little bit to thinking about being proactive and aggressive and how can we, how can we solve problems. Being right is different from solving a problem. Because uh, And so you really have to sort of get your brain thinking about, here's the issue, how can we stretch outside our comfort zone and provide a solution to that problem? And so how did Pulaski end up going? How long were you there? I was there until 2012. So I came in 2005, and I was there for seven years. Now, for um, four of those years, I worked under Ron. Uh, started off in customer service, and we had a, a very bright gentleman taking care of the IT side of the fiber business. Then after about uh, maybe a year or two, he left, and then I took over the technical side and the customer service side of the fiber system. And then uh, after another year or so, Ron left, and then uh, I became general manager of Pulaski. And uh, how did Pulaski end up doing What are some of the impacts on the community from the network? Well, uh, I think the people similar to Columbia enjoyed having the choice. Uh, I think the price, uh, prices stayed down for a long time. Uh, Pulaski got uh, quite a bit of notoriety at the time being such a small community. It, you know, a lot of the fiber to the home systems that were, that were in the works at that point were, were in bigger towns. I think we were just 4,500 homes passing. And so that's a, that's a small fiber to the home system. I mean, that's right on the bubble of can you make the fixed costs pay out. Right, and especially for that head end for cable television. Exactly, and it's a beautiful head end. Uh, the Pulaski Data Center and, and uh, NOC that we built, their network operations center, was absolutely first class. And they have banks and other folks that stored their data there because it is such a great facility built in an F5 tornado-proof bunker. And we stole a lot of ideas from Jackson, uh, Tennessee, who had, who had done similar things. So the, the community did benefit, but... But it's interesting. You have to remember that while you think you're doing this for um, altruistic purposes and, and to really make the community better, your customers are shoppers first. They look at you with the same level of scrutiny, maybe, a, maybe colored a little bit nicer 
but really they're going to put you through the paces just like you were Charter, Comcast, anyone else. And if you don't have a product suite that, that is attractive to them and you don't have a price point that's reasonable to them, you know, there are a few that will join you just out of civic pride, but that's not enough to float your business plan. Tell me about the Pulaski's neighbors. Are, are there people nearby that are unable to get service because of that? Uh, those uh, four words in Tennessee law that are being, uh, I know the FCC struck them down, but it's being appealed. Um, you know, is this one of those areas that could be benefited if Pulaski could go outside of its borders? Pulaski and Columbia have a situation where our electric systems serve part of other communities. So, uh, of course, Pulaski served all of Pulaski, Tennessee, but it also served a portion of Ardmore, Tennessee. Ardmore is an interesting community. It actually bridges a state line between uh, Tennessee and Alabama. And uh, it was always a struggle because Ardmore was, a, was a, uh, a growing little community. And we thought, well, it would be nice to provide service there, but we don't want to get in a situation where we can provide service on one side of the street but not the other side of the street. How do you market that without just frustrating people? Columbia has the same problem now. The community to our north, Spring Hill, we serve electricity to about a third, maybe a quarter third of Spring Hill. Um, and Spring Hill is a very, very fast-growing community, one of the fastest-growing communities in the nation. So they've experienced a lot of growth. I would like to participate in that growth. But again, I'm limited in that uh, I can't serve outside my electric footprint. So how could I market to that community? And then there's also just some areas that uh, often municipal electric systems have sort of long, drawn-out service territories because usually they serve the municipality themselves. And then they started going out the highways, you know, at 80 years ago as the electric systems were getting built. Well, there are homes and whatnot sort of right off of those, those boundary lines uh, that could be attractive to be served. It would be nice to be able to do that. Uh, and then I had one other question that, that gets back to Pulaski just because we, we noted the general obligation debt. Um, that doesn't seem uh, super common in my impression. And when I look at most of the fiber networks, particularly those built over the last 10 years by electric utilities, a lot of times it's some form of revenue bond that is ultimately secured by the utility as opposed to the, the taxpayers. You get benefits from a geo bond. You also get some increased comp- complications. But I will say this. One of the strengths of a general obligation bond is your city council is going to have to vote for it. And what it shows is that the utility is not just going off and doing this itself, that it has uh, – the general obligation bond infers the full faith and credit of the community. But really what you're getting is the full faith and credit of your city council, that they understand the significance of what is happening and they are standing side by side with the utility towards its success. I think that's a really good point to make sure. I mean, I think, you know, I'd be curious if you would agree. I think a lot of city councils do take this seriously, but the act of forcing them to put their skin in the game may even amp that up a little bit more. And the way these geo bonds work is they are what's known as tax-backed bonds, which means that the revenues from the system will pay for them. But should those revenues be insufficient – then they can fall back on the full faith and credit of the city. And what you get by that is almost no risk to the bondholders, and so you get very low interest rates. And so that's attractive. And then the next step of that actually is that the business plan is more viable. That's one of the things that can really threaten uh, young networks if they have a higher interest rate. Those early debt payments can be really painful. Going all the way back to our discussion of Hillsdale, we were looking at 9% interest. 
And there's just <laughs> no way we could make that work. You know, the banks would at nine, nine and a half. Sure, they'd float us the bonds. We couldn't, we couldn't do that. Last time we did a refinance here uh, in Columbia about two years ago, and we were at 1.9% interest. Yeah, that makes all the difference. Um, so as we're winding up, I want to get a sense of um, any other um, practical and tactical challenges. I think we've discussed a few, but if another community is looking at doing something like this, what sort of advice do you have for them? Well, I think it's important to realize that you know you may be in a small town. Uh, you're really providing a competitive mass market product, so you need to approach it that way. You need to have marketing material and product packaging put together that looks professional because, again, they're comparing you to the biggest titans in the industry. You, you may say, we're going to sell it on service, and that is a beautiful thing to say, but very few people will give you the benefit of the doubt on that. Your price and your features need to be right. But when I talk about price, don't start a price war. There's no reason to do it because your competitors can bury you in price uh, because they can write checks all day long. So you need to be lower than the competitors, but don't be crazy low because you're only going to hurt yourself because what you're going to do is you're going to set yourself up to where you may have to employ a dramatic rate increase in the future. Anyone who's been in the utility business knows rate increases are best done when they are small incremental changes over a period of time. Sticker shock will, uh, will cause you to lose customers. That's actually something that I wanted to to raise earlier as well. When you were talking about the um, the pressure that you're in with the television business, uh, we've certainly seen that public and private small-scale providers are being squeezed. Um, but I, I was curious, um, what have your Internet prices done over the years? Uh, have you had to increase them, and how often? Ten years ago, this service had, I think, a 35-meg backhaul. Uh, today, we have a 6-gig backhaul. And uh, we are paying a little bit more for that, for the six gigs, than we were for the 35 bags. <laughs> and so the prices may remain very stable, but the, uh, uh, the amount of bandwidth is just uh, incredible. What does that mean for the consumers then in, their, in the households? It's good things. It's good things for everything. It, it means that it's, it's good business for us because Internet is the one area out of the triple play bundle where you do have the opportunity to... Um, to really recover some of your capital investment that you spent building the infrastructure. Cable TV has become a very challenging business. And if anyone is thinking about getting into this now, they need to seriously consider what would be the hit they would take if they didn't launch with video. I think and before that would seem crazy. Triple play, you had to do it. Now I think it's sort of on the bubble. You need to weigh out the pros and the cons. Our experience is you just don't make a lot of money after you pay the programmers. Cable TV programmers, I refer to them as a brood of vipers. Their job is to squeeze as much money possible out of you. We all just watch the Super Bowl and, and uh, the NCAA championship, and those are fantastic. Those are, those are amazing events. Tremendous amounts of money are spent. Who pays for most of that money? Your cable TV subscribers pay for most of that. The financial underpinnings of the professional sports world is based on the revenue coming off of essentially every home in America. They figured out a way to tax every home in America uh, through ESPN and Fox, and, uh, and, and those pressures are unrelenting. Well, one of the things that I hear from those who are still planning on going into the video business is, well, we expect to lose $5 per month per video subscriber maybe just because, you know, we can't even offer a lineup that's going to be reasonable at a price that people would take it. But it's worth it to us because we will be gaining more internet subscribers at that point. 
Yeah, that's very, very true. That's you have to do the balance. I mean, so it is somewhat of a loss leader. There's no doubt about it. Internet provides you an opportunity to recover some of your costs there because some of the early municipal broadband systems, and this would be ones that even happened in the 80s. A lot of people don't realize municipal broadband did get started in the 80s, but it was in a non-competitive way. Often they were the first and only cable TV provider in their communities until Billy Ray came around in, uh, in Glasgow and he, and he did a competitive overbuild. Good old Billy Ray. Yes, I'm, I just love to hear his voice. He's, uh, uh, Billy's one of my favorite people. He's a good friend of mine, and, and I, I respect what he's done and what he is still doing. It's important that some of these early systems, you know, they follow the traditional utility model. Of you cover your costs and you're done. What they didn't take into account is those costs were not near as stable as a traditional utility environment. They change dramatically and rapidly. And so they allowed themselves to get upside down very quickly. So if you have a little margin today, Enjoy it because it won't always be there. And again, the capital infrastructure of this business is different. When we put pipes in the ground for water or power lines in the air for, for uh, power, they're going to stay there for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. But what we are putting in the little devices and that we are lighting up on our broadband networks are all going to need to be replaced much, much sooner than that. Is there anything else that you want to um, share with us before we end the show? Well, if someone is getting into this business and they decide to uh, to start off, um, you know, you can't train your people well enough or test it long enough. I mean, there's just going to be some trials that you have just have to go through. But keep in mind that a credit to a customer covers a multitude of sins. So when you first have those first little uh, out of the box problems, uh, throw a couple of credits on the customer, and you'll be amazed how forgiving they are. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, and it's really great to talk to you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. That was Chris and Wes Kelly, Executive Director of the Columbia Power and Water System in Columbia, Tennessee. Send us your ideas for the show. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. You can follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. You can also follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter, where the handle is at muninetworks.org. Thank you to Kathleen Martin for the song Player vs. Player, licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 189 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs>